It's all Dharma, you know. I should play Let It Be for the beginning of this. Huh. You know how to turn that on? You do. <laughs> Go ahead, Vicky. It's just three minutes. We'll sit, we'll listen to it, and it'll be the beginning of the tape. Not, iTunes isn't open anymore. Oh, there, you'll s- see, you see the icon for it? Well, it'll come up. Right, no, d- d- tick on that thing. Oh, there it is. Now, okay, do it as a meditation.
Do what? Stop button. Where? That did it. <laughs> so the important thing of words of wisdom, let it be. Let it be. The thing that the, the, I just was thinking about the Buddha's teaching about the second arrow, something happens and it's painful. And uh, rather than just acknowledge this is painful, that we think that we do something with the mind often that's uh, a, um, an, uh, an unthought through, unwise response to the painful, which makes it more painful. Uh, we think of an example. Uh, somebody says something that's critical to you and you feel terrible about it. And... Uh, and you think, he's right, I'm really awful, I'm much worse than that, that's uh, more arrows. Or you think, when I see them next, I'm going to really tell them about that, and really let them know in a not-so-subtle way what I think about them, thereby hyping it up another way. Um, we very rarely, someone says something critical, respond in the way that Shanti Deva said you should respond. Shanti Deva was an 8th century commentator in the Buddhist tradition, says, somebody says something critical to you, you should think thus. Is he right? Then think it over. Is he right? If he's right, is she right? They're right. They're doing you a favor, really. You know, it's something that you could think about and fix up and improve yourself with, have a better life. If they're right, why don't you look at it and maybe profit from it? Then he goes on to say, or, think about it, and say, or, are they wrong? So if they're wrong, what's the problem? See, but the thing with us is, what's the problem? Pfft, doesn't end it. And say, what's the problem? But they said it, they think it, people think it, they might have said it to some other people. I have to post a retraction, and I'll, you know, well, what if somebody else, how dare they do that? There's all kinds of things we do to make things worse. Let it be. Let it be, do something constructive with it, and finished. It happened. It can't be otherwise. It's not so much control we have over things, which is what I mostly learned this week in a, in a practice that was mostly let it be. Here was what I based my practice on. This is, the, uh, this is a 35-year-old edition of the Faith Verses of the Third Zone Patriarch. I'm afraid you can't get it anymore like this. This is very nice because it's a little bit like a breviary or a psalter. You can put it in your purse and have it with you all the time, which I have had it with me. I changed purses in 35 years, but I always put this in the new one. You never know when you'll be in a bus terminal or in a boarding lounge when you might want to know that the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is a disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. That particular last line was what I was using as the guideline for my teaching. It was the essential peace that, that I, I felt it was the instruction 
along with Ajahn Amaro's instruction, let the mind assume the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. I assumed that that was the commentary on that instruction, and that um, that it wasn't so far away, that if in fact I do did the simple things that I know how to do for the mind to relax, so that the simple peace that's underneath it all would be manifest. It meant that I moved into a retreat center. It doesn't mean you always have to move into a retreat center, but it's a helpful thing to do. Moved into a retreat center. I turned off my cell phone. Um, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing to turn off a cell phone. Every time you go by your purse, the voice of the cell phone says, I'm right in here in, in your purse, you know. <laughs> if you feel like opening this purse, you could just check your email, you know. Talks to you. Uh, <laughs> and each time you have to say, no, not doing that. So you turn off your email, you turn off your cell phone, uh, and you sit and you walk and you sit and you walk and you eat the simple meals that they serve at the time that they serve them and you listen to the teachings and that's all you do. And while you're in between, while you're sitting and walking and sitting and walking, you try as best you can to just, to not elaborate the moment. To not elaborate the moment, I think. Just what's happening. Doesn't have to be just the breath that you're paying attention to. You could be paying attention to the steps as you walk along. You could be t sitting and paying attention the general sense of peace and ease in your mind and body. Be paying attention to what's going on outside. Birds are going by, and deer are munching. <coughs> One time in the middle of the week, my mind was feeling a little bit, um, uh, a little bit punchy, a little bit stoned from so much quietness. You know, if you are a little bit stoned, in case you know a little bit about that, you tend to get a little giddy and things seem funnier than what they normally might be. I don't know anything about that, of course, but uh, anyway, I was sitting and eating my lunch one day. And eating my lunch, we had a lot, a lot of salad and a lot, a lot of kale and a lot, a lot of... I mean, winter vegetables, they're very good for you. A, a number of times I said to myself, think of your vitamin A level, it's shooting way up, all this kale. <laughs> you get a, it's very good for you, the kale and all that. So you had a lot of kale. So <laughs> sitting and eating the kale, and it takes a certain amount, especially uh, if it's in with other greens, you have to really chew for a while because it can be a little bit tough. So I'm sitting and I'm chewing, and I'm being aware of chewing, 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 chewing. And I suddenly had a hit. I'd been sitting outside just before, watching a little flock of deer, also chewing, chewing, <laughs> chewing, chewing. And I suddenly had a hit that the deer and I were more or less <laughs> doing the same thing. And it just seemed to me so funny. I thought I'd start to giggle in the middle of the dining room. Of course, the dining room was completely <laughs> silent. So you have, huh? Except for the chewing. Except for the chewing. So you have to, you have to suddenly say, "Go, oh, don't laugh, don't laugh. Take a breath in, breath out." <laughs> but it's very funny. But uh, just to, just to tell you that because it's 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 certainly not all grim. Uh, Jane was there. Did you have a good time, Jane? Yeah. Did we have a lot of kale? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, when I came home, I told my husband, I, I just don't want anything green right now. <laughs> <laughs> we had a lot of green. I had one evening where I had salad covered with steamed zucchinis, steamed broccoli, and steamed kale. It was all right, you know. <laughs> Told myself a lot about the vitamin A. Uh, but uh, more than that, more than that was, it was a great pleasure to work on uh, not, a set, not uh, being alert to whatever might disturb the peace and ease. So if you weren't here early this morning, I was talking about my sense that 
Here's the mind going along, not being riveted to the breath or riveted to the body, but just here's the body, here's the breath, here's the cool air, here's the cool bench, here's the wet of the, of the cloud that's sitting over us. And here's a thought, there's a thought, here's a thought, there's a thought. I think people sometimes think that thoughts stop. They don't stop, just like breathing doesn't stop. The, the mechanism for cognating the world continues on. This is not a problem of thoughts. Sometimes people begin to think that, treat the thoughts as enemies. Goodness, thinking, thinking, thinking. And I think it's a misunderstood that's you. Since you may have heard that, I want to tell you that I think it's a misunderstood instruction. That the instruction that when you discover that a lot of thinking has started started up, to stay thinking, 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 and then the thinking will disappear. It will, but it won't be. It won't disappear because you've noticed it and grokked it deeply. It'll disappear because you said a mantra for thirty seconds. And it took your attention away from the thought that you were thinking. And uh, it made you a little bit more deeply concentrated, so the thought just disappeared. Actually, uh, in the Satipatthana Sutta, in the part on uh, mindfulness of the domain of uh, the mind, it says the meditator notices What's the, state, what's the state of my mind? Mind empty of lust, mind full of lust, mind empty of anger, mind full of anger, mind empty of confusion, full of confusion. And particularly, I was very relieved to see years ago when I first studied it that one might note, apparently with the same dispassion, mind full of thoughts, mind empty of thoughts. That full of thoughts is not necessarily bad, it's busier. Sometimes the mind is full of thoughts. If they're not thoughts that uh, in some way unsettle the mind, sometimes you have a lot of thoughts, mind full of thoughts. You say, Whoa, well, maybe I'll take a deeper breath and settle myself down and we'll see what happens. But it's not necessarily bad. Sometimes you have lots of thoughts. The, it becomes so clear to me that what arises in the mind is, is just what arises in the mind. And what accounts for suffering or not suffering is what the mind, how the mind meets it, the, the, the context with which it is met. So that was really very clear to me. It was also clear to me that one of the things that happens uh, really immediately as I begin to be able to see more clearly what's the dynamic, what's happening, and what happens next, and what happens next, and what happens next, uh, you begin to see the kind of habit patterns that uh, are part of the fabric of your mind. This is all using you know, heuristic terms, or uh, uh, of course, there's no fabric in the mind, but that the the mind operates according to certain. Uh, habit patterns that have been established for who knows how long. So you can tell something about your own habit patterns. Here's an example from myself. So I thought this was pretty illustrative of the kind of habit patterns I have. I came into the kitchen, uh, the dining hall one day for lunch or for dinner. I'm not sure. But anyway, the, uh, if you've been on retreat, you know there are panels on the wall right as you walk in with signs that can say that meals have been donated. You can donate a meal if you're on retreat, even if you're not on retreat. If you had a friend who was on retreat and it was their birthday, you could phone in and say, I'm, I want to give you $260 to pay for breakfast for everybody or whatever it is, something like that. And please put up a sign that says... Uh, 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 best happy birthday wishes to uh, Mijo from her friend Susan, whatever you wanted to do. And it could be up there. 
And then everybody else who's coming through would get an uplift. They'd know, oh, somewhere, whether or not they knew Mijo and Susan, they'd know somewhere there's a Mijo, somewhere there's a Susan, somewhere they're friends. They thought about them, and they're feeding all of us. And it's a very nice, um, for me, I think that it's so uh, consistent with the fact that none of us are monastics teaching here. And if we, none of us have begging bowls. And the retreatants who come on retreat are not monastics. They're not renunciates. But it's, it's as if the community has provided a meal for everyone. It's as if feeding the people who are doing the work of consciousness. So it's a very sweet thing. So I come into the dining hall, and it says, so-and-so, so-and-so, I see she's not here today, has uh, donated today's lunch with blessings to President Obama, uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, the San Francisco Giants, <laughs> my grandchildren, and all other beings in the world was the fifth one. So I thought, well, that's really nice. And, you know, I mean, and I watched my mind upstairs. I said, it's a really sweet thing to do. Then I think to myself, I wonder if Mr. Obama is doing poorly in the polls, <laughs> and that's why he's right on the top of that list, and they're sending special blessings to him. And uh, you see, I have no information about that. All I know is that she's sending blessings. But you see, I could have thought maybe that means Mr. Obama has shot up again in the polls. Well, who knows what it means? Anyways, I'm thinking maybe something not so good with Mr. Obama. And I say, hmm, I wonder if His Holiness has taken ill. You know, <laughs> I don't. You know, when I went on retreat last week, for all I knew, the Dalai Lama was in a good shape. But suddenly, he's right up there, second with the blessings. Okay, that's interesting. Then the San Francisco Giants, I think, aha. Uh -huh. I went on retreat when they were already down from the Cardinals. So it looked like no way in the world because they still had not finished with the Cardinals. And they would have had to run four games in a row, impossible. So I thought to myself, well, surely they lost. And she's consoling the San Francisco <laughs> Giants for feeling badly. So you see that not only do you make up stuff, but you make up completely wrong stuff, you know. <laughs> and you can see that, that my mind is tinted in the direction of uh, you know, possible gloom and doom on all situations. Then I think, well, her grandchildren, I wonder if they're all right. Then I thought, actually, I figured out I'm, I'm sure they're all right. Because if they weren't all right, she would have put them on the top of the list. <laughs> When she, before all those other people, absolutely. Not save them till the end. So the grandchildren must be all right. And then it's always a very good idea to put all of the beings in the world because that's for one's own benefit. That's really, you know, all the benefits, all the beings in the world are not going to feel that moment, aha, somebody prayed for me. But I am going to feel I prayed without om omitting none for everything that's alive which would be a very good condition of my own heart with no barriers in it. So what I'm really praying for is my own open heart because that's the most rewarding way to live. It would mean I was a completely unfrightened person. A person I know, you probably know her too. I won't say her name. She's a writer of great renown. I admire her writing tremendously. And she's very well known. She's a local person. She's very well known for, the, for a line that she says often, which she says, my mind is a bad neighborhood and I wouldn't want to go there alone. <laughs> and every time I hear her say, say that and everybody laughs, I think to myself, I really, really hope that my mind is not a bad neighborhood. I want my mind to be a completely safe neighborhood so that I can go there alone. And I feel like the whole of practice is to make my mind or my heart, which are really the same thing, a really good neighborhood where people feel safe and where in which I feel safe. May I be free of enmity and danger is the beginning of one of the metta chants. At one point, I thought that meant the danger of other people coming after me with enmity. 
but I'm quite sure that it means may I be free of enmity so that I won't be in danger of ill will, which poisons my mind. So it's very interesting. So I want to tell you that story because I thought, you know, you could go by, it's nothing. This person has given lunch to everybody, good. But if you really stop and you have to wait online for a minute and you have an extra two minutes, you can think a whole universe of thoughts. Dalai Lama, President Obama, the giants, the cardinals, the this, the that, the grandchildren, all beings, is my heart open? But fundamentally, uh, with a great heart opening, she bought lunch for 100 people on behalf of what came up in her mind to care about. There was more to it, though, because as I thought through all those things, what about this, what about that, the grandchildren, and then I thought all those sort of dire things about president is losing, the Dalai Lama is sick, the giants are in a wretched mood, all of those things. And I also thought, if that's all true, I can't do a thing about it. I can't do a thing about it. Not only because I'm here on retreat, but even if I were out of the retreat, I can't do anything about the Dalai Lama's health or President Obama's winning chances. I already have voted. I already have made many donations. I mean, you know, I can't do anything else. It's out of my hands. And after that comes the realization that most things are out of my hands. Really, there's very little things that that uh, you know I have. I have proximal effect. Every every I know that there's a way to f follow along the fact that we none of us act alone, and so what can you do that will make a difference? Everybody acting will make a difference. Everybody voting on Tuesday will make a difference. Nobody's saying, "Well, I don't like." <laughs> One of my grandsons said in a whole family meeting, I don't think I'm going to vote for either of them. I don't like either. Made such an uproar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, that's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, but, um, but even not acting is acting. So everybody has to act. And everybody acting together. You know, it's like, uh, everybody who's given $1,000 to this new campaign, we cannot build a meditation hall for $1,000. But we have more than $800,000 now towards that building. And we will be able to build it because maybe maybe actually now coming on nine. Uh, when we come to 1,000 people, I am going to appoint all the people who have already joined to be ambassadors to go find somebody else. And I have this miraculous plan that overnight a thousand more people will join because somebody else full of fervor will come and ask them to join. It could happen. It could happen. So a lot of people acting together make a difference. But I myself cannot make a difference with any of these and with most things. And I can't make the sun come up in a different place and I can't cure terrible diseases. There are a lot of things for which my mind is needs to say, let it be. I can't do anything about it. Every once in a while when I hear people sharing their prayers and they talk about people who are in the end part of being in this life, who still talk about meeting every moment with grace and um, appreciation for that moment, I think to myself, that's how I want to do it not lamenting how much of hypothetical future I don't have, or even how much of the non-hypothetical past I may feel I messed up. I used to think if I, had half again, if I had half again the time that I have spent ruminating and worrying about things that didn't happen, pasted onto my life, I would get a whole lot. Anybody thinks they, that if, we, if they had put in the bank the amount of time worrying about what they had, what they in fact couldn't do anything about. So the mind makes stories, but if you follow the story along, you come to the end of it, which is, everything is interrelated. I cannot, I can't make anything happen by myself, but groups of people can make things happen. I heard this great story apropos of 
of the uh, Giants. Did you hear that? There's um, um, this new player on the team. What's his name? T no, not Scooter. Huh? Pence. Pence. Hunter Pence. Did you tell me that story, Kim? You know the story about Hunter Pence? He came on at the last minute in St. Louis. They're all despondent. It's not going. We're losing. And he comes in like a jolt of energy. Say, hey, you can't do this. This is a team. You're not playing for yourself. You're playing for the team. We can, this is all by a bunch of very skilled people. Look at the name in the front of your uniform, not the one in the back. Play for the name in the front of the uniform, not the name in the back. Let's go get them. And they went out and won the next six or seven games in a row and, and went all the way through the Cardinals and then won the World Series. You think to yourself, it's like a ministering angel who comes in from somewhere and says, hey, <laughs> you forgot. Uh, you are a group of people, yeah? I mean, they were saying things that are unheard of in sports, the Giants, after the wins. They were saying, we won because we all love each other. And the general manager was saying that, that, that you know, there's love in the clubhouse. And it was just, I was thinking, is this... Is this sports I'm listening to? Because I have never heard anything like this before. Yeah, I think it's great. You know, and, and, and this is really, this is terrific. Uh, you know, the, the just parenthetically, last time, four years ago when they won. Two years ago. Two years ago. Two years ago when they won. Uh, it just so happened that it, it uh, the series went to seven games on that on that night. I happen to be giving the yearly talk to the Kaiser doctors, San Francisco. Did I tell you that story? So I'm thinking to myself while driving into San Francisco, no one's going to come to this talk, and everybody's going to be home watching the television. So they came to the talk, and so it's a beautiful ballroom, all set, beautiful dinner, all china, all this beautiful sparkling, and huge televisions hanging from the <laughs> in a sports bar, which was very wise. And everybody's milling around, having hors d'oeuvres and cheese and wine and pretending to have conversation <laughs> where you can see all the while they're watching the thing, uh, they're watching the game that's hanging down. You know they're watching the game because uh, in the middle of all this polite conversation, there's, a, there's an all of a sudden, yay, because Sandoval has hit a home run and everybody saw it. They were watching with one eye up on the screen. And the uh, and I was supposed to be talking at seven thirty, and it's already coming on seven thirty, and they're not finished. And the director who had asked me to talk came. He said, "What should we do? It's getting on seven thirty. Should we turn off the game?" I said, "No, you know, we're, we're a huge, huge scene here. If you turn off the game, finish the game." So they finished the game, and I remember also being struck by the same thing: that guys came, the guys in the field came running and everybody throwing their gloves in the air. And everybody jumping on each other and hugging and, you know, patting, all that patting that goes on. <laughs> and everybody hugging. And I thought to myself and talked about with that group, I had labored long and hard to write what I thought was a beautiful talk, organized, everything which I threw out completely <laughs> on the moment and talked about the fact that you all just saw a bunch of grown men so enthusiastic about each other with each other, jumping up and down, because that's what happens when you're part of a group that does something well. And how how must it be like that to be a group of Kaiser Docs that every day goes out and as a group does so much good to so much people, which really resonated with that whole group because they do, and they had just done it that day. And uh, you know, the, when you look at it, you're exactly right, that hugging and patting and slapping and all that goes on. You don't see anybody saying, hug, hug, hug. Oh, you, I'm not hugging. I'm skipping. I'm going around <laughs> to the next person. It's indiscriminate hugging, which, it, which is really the point of it. When the mind is lifted up enough, it indiscriminately hugs. So it can say, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. So here it was again the other night. So even the... We we went out. Did you catch the end of the game, Jane? When you went <laughs> when we left the other night, they were just uh, going into the tenth inning while I was in my car, so I listened to it. Yesterday, 
Yesterday, I went to teach at Branson's, the, the, the secondary school here in Ross. Went to teach in Branson School. I get invited every semester to teach one class of seniors in philosophy and religion. And I always get invited while they've been studying the Buddha. And at 15 or so really bright, lovely 17-year-olds who have been primed to get ready to ask me questions. And I came in and was there, so what questions would you like to ask? And they all wanted to talk about emptiness. What does it mean, empty? There's nobody in there empty. But empty bothers people, you know. That, uh, because the other two, uh, uh, of the three characteristics, the characteristic of experience, the characteristics that people get is you say everything is impermanent. Okay, you get that, you know, last year's, Ball game is already in the record books. Now this year's ball game is in the record books. Uh, the winter drought is in the record. Uh, the summer drought is in the record books. Everything passes. They grew up from being whatever they were. People in their family have died. They get that. They get that the mind uh, with imperative in it, waiting for something that they need or want. Talked about what is it that you need or want that's causing imperative in the mind now. So they're all waiting to get their college acceptances now. And they have tremendous imperative that the letter should come. But then once it comes, it should have the right thing on it. So that, you know, so we talked about what's the dynamics of, and you all get, everybody here is online now. Most people here are online. Say, so, well, you go online and you're nervous. You're nervous that it will be there or that it won't be there. So that it's a really, it's a fraud thing. So the best possible scenario is that it is there and it does say what you want. And then the nervous goes out of the mind. Phew, you're all right. It's not there. still there. You need to have it happen. Now the mind is stuck in that tenseness. So they could talk about that and they can get that imperative to have it another way. And what if you get a, 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 a letter from the place that says, we're sorry, you're tremendously qualified, but we had eight million people apply, and and we just did not have a place. Best of luck. And uh, the problem it is to convince the mind that it won't be equally wonderful somewhere else, and, and you don't you will have a different life from going to X instead of Y. You'll meet different people, different things will happen, but you don't know that they won't be way more better or interesting. You don't know anything. Every time we get in, attached to it, it's got to be this way. You don't know. You don't know. What always comes up in my mind is a few years ago, this is a terrible story. So I'll tell it fast because it's terrible. Get it over. <laughs> a, few years, a, a few years ago, just in the fall of a certain year when the college people had gone got back to college, there was an, a, a terrible accident in... Um, Santa Barbara, you may remember, some car on a main thoroughfare went out of control, rode up on the uh, rode up on the street, and killed three or four people. And they were all new students at Santa Barbara, and what I thought of immediately was all of these people six months before had gotten acceptances to Santa Barbara, and they'd been so happy. And if they hadn't gotten the acceptances from Santa Barbara, they would have been so unhappy. And they didn't. And those people who didn't get, you don't know which decision is going to cause you to not get on the plane that crashes, or to get you know to get you here instead of there. You just don't know any of that stuff. Just don't know. I think that that. Sort of awareness of vulnerability, I think, is one of the things that I was thinking about last week on retreat, is that really turns the heart towards compassion. That we could quieten our own mind, but I'm not so sure that compassion would be automatically self-arising. I'm working on that. You'll hear about it next week. I'm trying to think it through. I've, I have a whole plan. But I think that it requires more than just a, a, a relaxed mind and an unstartled mind. It, it, it requires more than equanimity. It requires a level of wisdom, that this is a very contingent world. Everything depends on everything else. 
um, a little girl was killed in Nevada a few weeks ago on her bicycle. Uh, she was driving home from school with two other people. They stopped at a corner. Then the two other people took off, and she stayed to talk another minute with someone else. And then she went, and a, a truck ran into her car, and she died. And nobody was at fault. The driver wasn't speeding. It wasn't into the sun. It wasn't drunk. It's just one of those things that sometimes happens. It was an accident. And that family had just moved here three weeks before from someplace else. And when you think, what if they hadn't moved? What if they hadn't moved to Nevada? What if they'd been somewhere else? What if she hadn't talked an extra minute to somebody? The whole life hangs on what if. And when you realize that, you think, So in this moment, when you realize we are all, we get up every day and continue on with such confidence as if it's not all hanging on a hair. But it's all hanging on a hair, really. That... um, so they wanted to know about, they didn't get, so they got about, um, the, the first characteristic made sense about Anicca, uh, um, impermanence, and they got it about uh, suffering. Uh, but they didn't get it about no one there. So it certainly feels like somebody's there. So really to say to them, it does feel like there's somebody there. And uh, it feels like there's somebody there around you, too. The people that you love feels like you're a you and they're a them. And on the level that we can discourse about it, that's true. That doesn't have to do with, uh, what, with what we're talking about. There's a sense of a self and a sense of a person and a sense of agency that's connected with that sense of a person. We do things. We think things. We act. We make decisions. So we have always a sense that there's a decider and an actor and a doer. And it's valuable to have that sense because then we can orient our lives uh, towards the good. Um, Oh, good, I'm going to end in a place where I want to be. But even even, even that being so, you can imagine that consciousness is not an unbroken event, that consciousness is the faculty of seeing meeting with something to be seen. And hearing a sound is the consciousness of hearing meeting with a sound. And should there be something going by uh, that uh, should someone pass a pizza under here, I'd smell it and I'd know pizza and desire would arise. Someone probably did an atomizer with pizza uh, that desire would arise even without the in the place of the pizza because you know you go by a pizza store you, you, you smell it that things keep hmm? things keep you pizza perfume things keep happening things keep happening and responses keep happening with seeing hearing tasting smelling and thinking. And so we intuit a solid thinker in there that's doing all those different things. You think about, does it really matter a lot if there is a solid or if it just arises moment to moment to moment to moment? I think the arising moment to moment, uh, it seems to me more and more, I was thinking of this on retreat, uh, my experience feels like it's an unbroken stream uh, sometimes, but I think that's like when you go to a movie and it looks like people are moving around and doing things, but actually what you're seeing is individual sc- screens of things being projected at a certain velocity that gives the effect of movement. I think my consciousness arises in individual blips so close together that it feels like there's a thread in it. I think there's a thread but no holder of the thread, no owner of the thread, and that the thread is actually empty as well. But it's a thread that's going in one direction or another direction. And so if it's going in a certain direction because it's been trained to respond or not respond in certain ways, that might be in a direction that's coming, well, what was the word that I was reading, Stephen Batchelor, 
He said, I would like my life to be a... Um, He said, a, a trajectory. So there's nothing there. It's a series of moments. But the moments form a certain trajectory and a certain impetus in the world. He said, I'd like to be a trajectory for the good. And I like that very much. That that my life, moment to moment, arises and pass away, passes away. Moments of consciousness. But may they all come out as a trajectory for the good. Oh, Walt, did you come and take a picture of the Halloween? My costume is moving around. I'll put it back on. <laughs> Wait, but I need my doll. Oh, I had so much to say, but let me tell you about the, Okay, wait a minute. All right, thanks very much. Here's the doll. We'll put this on the Spirit Rock website, okay? Um, wait, wait, wait. I'll have to do this one. No, that's all right, because we're going to re read a little bit from Lady Macbeth now, so this is, this is good. <laughs> so what I think is that the healthy mind, the healthy mind orients itself so it will be a tra trajectory for the good, and... Uh, that uh, uh, there's a point and that, that it is up to us whether or not there's a permanent us. It's up to us to organize moment after moment the habits of the mind so that it comes out of trajectory to the good. Poor Lady Macbeth gets carried away with passion and her passion is greed that, uh, that her husband become actually king. Uh, uh, Naomi's our resident actress. Naomi, could, do you know, know any of that, that you could declaim by heart? I do not. Okay. <laughs> Gloms thou art and caught on, shall be what you are promised, yet I do fear thy nature. You are too full of the milk of human kindness to seek the nearest way. So here's his wife urging him on to, to kill the king. And his wife catches that urging and gets really sick from it in the mind and actually kills Duncan, kills the king, and then imagines that she has blood on her hands and can't wash it out. And so in a, in a Dharma talk the other night, my friend Trudy read a part where Macbeth calls the doctor to say, come and take care of my wife. I think she's gotten very sick. And Lady Macbeth is raving at that part about out damn spot and can't get the blood off her hands. And the doctor says, no, she's very sick. And uh, Macbeth says, um, doctor says, um, she's sick, my lord. She is troubled with thick coming fancies, fantasies that keep her from her rest. And Macbeth says, cure her of that. Cannot thou minister to a mind deceased, pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow, raise out the written troubles of the brain, and with some sweet, oblivious antidote, cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff that weighs upon the heart? And the doctor says, and this was the line that Trudy wanted everybody to hear, the doctor says, therein the patient must minister to himself. So that's the thing for all of us. We are in charge of ministering to ourselves and to all the fantasies that poison our thinking and make us sick. I think that all of our training is, is really, for me, so in the, in the direction of seeing more and more contingency in life and the fact that everything is contingency, the vulnerability that we all somehow manage to get up in the morning in the face of and carry on anyway. We go out as if we're going to come home at the end of the day. Uh, I've, in, in Judaism, at, when you come around to big holidays, I'm sure I've told you this before, when you come around to big holidays and the whole family gets together, you say a particular blessing that you don't say on other times. You say, uh, praise the source of all creation, that has kept us in life and sustained us 
and allowed us to reach this particular time. And when I was a young girl, when I was an adolescent, actually, I began to think we ought to say that blessing every night when we sit down at dinner, that we all got home again another day. Because every day we go out in the morning and you say to your best beloveds, I'll see you tonight. It's an actuarial guess, maybe. You know, the 12-year-old girl in Nevada didn't go home that night. So, and, and when we realize that, you think, <gasps> and if you realize that, why would you ever hurt anybody's feelings? Why would you make a day worse? It's like all of a sudden walking into a, feeling like you've walked into a hospital, where when you walk into a hospital and everybody's suffering, you lower your voice. I think in the world we would lower our voice and be kinder to each other and have a different world. So one of the things I thought I discovered last week in my week of um, practicing was that uh, I used to think that things led to, that equanimity, equanimity led to wisdom, led to compassion, led to forgiveness. Uh, I think I had four more of those words. Equanimity led to wisdom, led to mindfulness, led to equanimity, led to compassion, led to wisdom, led to compassion, led to forgiveness. I had two more. I forgot what they were. And I got them all down, and then I thought about them, and I thought, no, <laughs> these words all are the same as each other. They are, and maybe they're not exactly the same as each other, but they are co-arising with each other. It's like I once wrote a, taught about the eightfold circle really being an eightfold dot. So I had this whole circle of progression. This goes to this, goes to this, goes to this, goes to this. It's actually it's a dot. So actually I thought, oh, I'm going to make a whole class on that eightfold dot of virtues. But it's next week's class. Because <laughs> I'm sure it'll work out. I just haven't figured it all out yet. So you have to come next week. So listen, Serena brought the... Uh, Serena brought the uh, the charts. Serena, I told the group that we're about at 800. Are we about at 800? Very close, yes. Thank you. Yeah. I told them also about the... Uh, <laughs> 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 Wait a minute, Walt. i got to put my hand in. So yeah, it's, yeah, they... they <laughs> oh, okay. There you go. Oh, you think that'd be good to put on our website? All my friends will see me looking. <laughs> I just wanted to add, uh, while Walter's here, if you've joined the Song of Thousands of Buddhas, we would love to have a picture of you that we can put up on our website. We have this beautiful rotating uh, Buddhas and faces of the community, and so please let me hear. Oh, and if you've already signed up but didn't have your picture taken... Yes. Walter's here. Get your picture taken. Yeah. As you look at the website, you'll see pictures coming in and out. Is your picture on this? Oh, but if you then you should have Walt take your picture. That's what we do. Anyway, may all beings be peaceful and happy and join the Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas. <laughs> 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 <laughs>